Wow, thanks. All I want is to, to, to win in church on a Saturday morning. Um, it's so wonderful to be here, and I feel such a sense of kinship already um, with this community in the conversations I've had with people who are involved. Um, and so thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming out after the Pisco Disco, which sounds like it was intense, but you all are here now. Um, I, for the first time, whoops, I'm trying to use visuals. I don't usually use visuals, so, oh, okay, there, perfect. Um, so bear with me. Even pushing the buttons on a clicker, which seems simple, might prove challenging for me at certain moments, so thank you for your patience. Not drinking was hell. It felt like deprivation and punishment. My hall pass had been taken away for good. Now I was trapped in a bare white room, quarantined from relief, while the cinema reels of nostalgia played on the other side of a glass wall. Cheap tequila on metal bleachers, the icy slide of dirty martinis and the salty pop of olives on crisp autumn nights. Cold beer on warm summer evenings in backyards full of fireflies. Vodka tonic after vodka tonic in a dive bar littered with broken peanut shells waiting for my boyfriend to arrive, tucked into the forgiving folds of anticipation, which had always been easier than company. All that was gone. Only seltzer and self-regulation remained. If not drinking was hell, then sobriety was something else. It somehow managed, not on the first day or the 20th, but maybe on the 100th or the 400th, to start reframing deprivation as abundance. It turned lack into unexpected lushness. The whole world opened up, which didn't always feel good, the way salt on a small cut in your mouth can make it feel opened up too. Life fissured into presence. It came up through the cracks, the fierce glare of sunlight on snowbanks, the sugary heat of the bakery kitchen where I worked, the strip malls I passed on those long drives I took to pass the hours after my shifts were done. Recovery meetings were part of it. Days weren't just defined by absence. This is life minus drinking, but by a kind of extravagant plenitude. The voices of all these strangers telling their stories about loving booze so much they thought their hearts would break from losing it. There was abundance embedded in the rituals of those rooms, setting out folding chairs, drinking watery coffee from paper cups decorated with tulips, feeling the particular grooves of the palm creases of a hand I'd never felt before during closing prayers, the unfolded origami of that skin. 
The strange, unsettling love from strangers was abundance. The call to listen was abundance. But these weren't the only forms of abundance. The sensory hyper-attention of sobriety was overwhelming, like staring at the sun. The acid pang of an orange slice on a cold sore. My boyfriend's sleeping face on the pillow next to mine. The ache in the balls of my feet after 12 hours standing beside a giant mixer in a tiny kitchen. When I drank, I'd granted booze what Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick calls a, quote, surplus of magical properties. I'd somehow come to believe that booze had a monopoly on the ability to provide, quote, consolation, repose, beauty, or energy, as she put it, which can, quote, operate only corrosively on the self, thus self-construed as lack. The self, thus self-construed as lack. The more you start to need a thing, whether it's a man or a bottle of wine, the more you are unwittingly, reflexively, implicitly convincing yourself you're not enough without it. If drinking had once felt like a claustrophobic form of incompleteness, then reaching toward a higher power in sobriety felt like a liberating form of incompleteness. I'm not enough, but that's okay. I'm not all there is. I had always understood my faith in terms of lack. I didn't believe enough. But maybe doubt was another form of abundance. Maybe doubt was a symptom of wrestling the same way fever was a measure of your body's reckoning. Not the illness itself, so much as the way your body was calling toward health. In church as a child, listening to strangers sing hymns, I had longed for their faith and never imagined their doubt failed to imagine longing as part of their faith, saw it only as proof of my own failure. In recovery, they said your higher power could be anything. My first sponsor said her higher power was trees, or rather, the fact that a seed could become a tree, even though that transformation seemed absurd and inexplicable. Okay, I thought, I'll bite. My higher power was my mother's love, early shifts at the bakery when the kitchen was quiet and the sheeter was humming under my hands. It was the cornfields at dusk. It was my boyfriend making pancakes the morning after a fight. It was meetings and the thought of someday having a baby and it was sitting down to write and believing that someday I could write something that wasn't total shit. That sounded good. I was sure I would hate praying, but I actually felt forgiven by prayer. It was something I could do that didn't require belief. It could summon belief instead. Feeling connected to God wasn't a prerequisite. You could just get on your knees. 
that felt impossibly generous. Uncertainty turned into possibility. A bath mat turned into a prayer rug. My bathtub turned into the horizon of divinity. When I heard the word God, I pictured a row of shampoo bottles, remembered myself squinting, thinking, where are you? Years later, at the cloisters in Upper Manhattan, I read a caption about stained glass. When medieval architects started using it for their cathedrals, theologians came to see the paradox of stained glass, that it was simultaneously cap solid and capable of allowing the rays of the sun as a material version of the paradox of Mary, that she was simultaneously virgin and mother. Sobriety was another paradox, defined by absence, full of presence. At first, it seemed solid and unyielding. Life lived on the other side of glass. Eventually, it let in so much light. Before lush meant a drunk, it meant succulent growth. And before it summoned luxuriance, it meant soft or lax. And before it meant tenderness, it meant something more violent, a stroke or a blow. In the Mort Artur from 1400, quote, with the lush of the lance, he lit one his shoulders. The lush was something like the lash. It came sudden and sharp. It lit on his shoulders. A 1587 naturalism guide called Solanus's Worthy Work described shrubs, which so soon as they be in the deeps of the water, are lush and almost like a gristle to the touch. That sense of shrubs so soft they felt almost like animal tissue plunged and silken underwater. It summons to me the looseness of drunkenness, the way the sense of sway and hum and pliable quieting, the appeal of lushness, that sense of softness and abundance and fertility also summons something about drunkenness, how soft and pliable it turns the world. The first use of lush to mean succulence was likely a symptom of delusion. At the beginning of the second act of the Tempest, when the king of Naples arrives at Prospero's island with his lords and advisors, all the men see different things when they look at the distant land. Uninhabitable and almost inaccessible, Antonio says, while Gonzalo exclaims, how lush and lusty the grass looks, how green. The island's lushness is promise and impossibility at once, abundance and peril. The air breathes upon us here most sweetly, one says. The next adds, as if it had lungs and rotten ones. It's the bait and switch of the lush's life, the sweet air and the rotten lungs, the dream of the island and the fickleness of its magic. Gonzalo is the optimist or the one living by delusion, the one who sees the lush island rather than the rotten lungs of its atmosphere. He says, here is everything advantageous to life. True, says Antonio, save means to live. 
For me, drinking was one kind of abundance, the abundance of daydreams and endless desire, the lush and lusty island always in the distance. And sobriety was another kind of abundance entirely, the close quarters of the boat, the company of others on the journey, the slosh and surge of the sea, the godhead in my ordinary bars of soap, the fabric of the bath mat against my knees. It wasn't the green grass in the distance that I would never touch, but the grass right in front of me, shed from the soles of my shoes, proof of where I had been. When I was four years sober, I spent an April living in a small town in the middle of the West Texas desert. Marfa's two biggest employers were the Border Control and Chinati, an old cavalry fort that the artist Donald Judd had converted into a cluster of permanent installations. Finally gets to our first visual. It was full of artwork that other people called minimalist, though Judd himself had always resisted the term. His art was so minimalist it didn't even want the excess weight of that label. If you clung to that category, you were already wrong about it. But minimalist seemed apt to me. Two former artillery sheds full of aluminum boxes, countless barracks, okay, countable, six, outfitted with patterned rods of fluorescent light. One building just had pieces of paper hung on the walls, a series of gray rectangles, and nothing else. It was the kind of work, non-figurative, non-narrative, that made me feel like I had failed it just by looking at it and failing to feel anything or by assuming that feeling something was the only way to have a meaningful experience. I was often confused by minimalist art, not left cold so much as I was left agitated. I felt nothing or I felt bored, but it didn't end there. Then I felt shame and thought about how there were people who weren't bored, who were content Content with the minimal while I was always hungry for more. The people satisfied by a few spare lines on a piece of paper were most likely the same people who might have a single ripe peach for dessert while I would rather eat a carton of ice cream. When I visited Judd's home in Marfa, a compound called The Block, I was struck by how uncluttered and intentional everything felt. All clean, simple lines on the furniture, no boundaries between the objects of living and the objects of art, as if living were something that could happen without making a mess, as if one's whole life, day by day, could become a kind of art object in its own right. I knew Judd had two children, but I couldn't imagine a child in this deeply intentional environment. I imagined my six-year-old stepdaughter disrupting everything about this sleek stillness, leaving a mess on the tabletops or scratching the wood. But Judd had raised his children in this home. His two kids stayed in symmetrical wooden lofts whose doors were covered with faded stickers. Judd wrote about arriving in Marfa, driving, quote, a truck full of art to Texas and unloading it into the house and garage with a friend and my son, who was soon to eat his fourth birthday cake lost with his elders in Baja. 
For Judd, all these parts of his experience were connected. His children, his art, the vast Western landscape in which he imagined them all residing, just as the art itself was meant to be connected to the landscape, meant to dwell in these particular buildings under this particular sky. It was the bedrooms of Judd's children that began to convince me I had been misunderstanding his minimalism all along. I had understood the pristine and the spare as devoid of humanity. I would misunderstood simplicity as barrenness. I would understood myself, my own consciousness, my reactions as preemptively excluded from art that had been available to me the whole time. I started to entertain the possibility that its meaning wasn't something that resided just beyond my grasp, but something that lay inside the very experience I was having, the grasping itself, the struggle to make sense of, the wondering about what I was meant to be feeling. Perhaps what I had found minimalist was also maximalist in its way. A hundred aluminum boxes weren't just boxes. They held the reflections of clouds swollen with rain or painted by the burlesque of sunset. They held the weather itself. They held the whole sky. At a recovery meeting at a Connecticut rehab, I once heard a woman say she had spent her whole life needing to hold on to things, but now she needed to stand with both hands empty. Sometimes it's not about filling a lack, but about understanding lack itself as a form of abundance, a clarity, an opening, a state of longing. We were right at the threshold between winter and spring, and maybe spring made it harder to stand patiently with open palms. It's the season that promises the restoration of what's been lost, that will turn the earth back to the sun, that seems to say, you've lived with deprivation long enough. Now winter is over. In his book, The Gift, Lewis Hyde writes that, quote, the spirit of a gift is kept alive by its constant donation. He says, I have to give blindly, and I will feel a sort of blind gratitude as well. You have to stand there even once winter is done, hands outstretched, not knowing what summer will bring or when it will arrive. Hyde says, the gift goes around a corner before it comes back. When I read Hyde's book, I heard its prophecy. Everything I hold on to too tightly will die in my hands. That sentiment seemed beautiful, but so demanding. Weren't there some things it was okay to hold on to? In her prayer journal, Flannery O'Connor wrote, nothing can be possessed but the struggle. At another meeting during another winter, I heard a woman talk about bringing two Magnum bottles of wine with her to rehab. I knew I would ask her to become my sponsor when she said, everything I ever gave up had claw marks on it. We all know the poster with the footprints in the sand, the man who surveys his life and sees two pairs of footprints on the beach, proof of God walking beside him, except in his most difficult moments when one set of footprints disappears. 
He wonders why God abandoned him, but God corrects him promptly. It was then that I carried you, chiding him ever so softly for not getting it, for seeing absence where in fact there had been total presence. It was only the thousandth time I saw that poster that it made me cry. I wish I could say I had a spectacular story about being on Molly and watching the footprints morph into fantastical shadow creatures before my eyes, but really it was just me in a dingy bathroom during the early months of my separation on a Sunday away from my 14-month-old daughter. Missing her was a bottomless feeling. It had no edges. I needed her to always feel held by me. How could I give that to her when our bodies weren't together? I met a lactation consultant who told me it probably made it both harder and easier for me that I was still nursing. We were always connected, but it made it feel more viscerally wrong to ever be apart. And what about her, I wondered, my baby girl? Anytime I had to say goodbye to her, I told her my love was a blanket wrapped around her. I could remember holding her tiny body at five weeks old when we were getting her blood drawn nearly every day because a pediatric endocrinologist was worried she had a rare congenital defect. One morning, I held her tiny body in my lap as two nurses put two tiny IVs in the two tiny crooks of her arms, and the nurses said, we've never taken this much blood from someone this small. My daughter cried, confused by pain, and I cried as well, wishing I could explain to her why this pain was necessary. My tears and snot cloaked us both. That slippery shawl was another blanket. It was another abundance. People had told me motherhood would feel like deprivation, losing time, losing sleep, losing freedom, but it felt more like sudden and exhausting plenitude. There were more hours in the day when you never slept. My baby opened a seam in the night and pulled me into the strange, dark world beyond. Those silent hours between midnight and five when she slept on my chest as I watched terrible reality television about aspiring Australian models and ate apple cobbler I'd brought home from the hospital or else paced the living room looking across the street at the single lit window on our block wondering who and why. It was like I'd landed on another planet that had been invisibly tucked inside our ordinary world all this time. During the days, during our walks, I noticed things I'd never noticed before. The secret garden fountain on 3rd Street, the purple lights flooding from windows overlooking the park, what plants were growing there, the viciously indignant photographs of shoplifters posted beside the entrance to the gentlest twee toy shop, wood and cloth only. I was never doing anything besides nursing or wandering with the baby strapped to my chest. 
I learned the names of trees I'd been walking past for years. London plane tree, silver maple, Siberian elm. I watched the branches beyond the nursery window turn from bare to bud to bloom. Remembered my first sponsor saying her higher power was just the fact that trees could grow from seeds. The divinity lived not in the spectral body of some old man with a beard, but in the fact that this absurd, stupendous transformation was possible. Being with my baby every hour of every day demanded close attention, not just to her, how her eyes stayed open longer, how her fingers learned to grasp, how her smiles rose like bubbles from some deep well inside her. Curse the fool who called them reflex smiles. They were not. But also to everything else. The alternative to paying attention to all the little things was growing bored out of my mind. All my adult life I'd spent thinking about time as a resource that could be converted into completed tasks. Bakery shifts finished, groceries bought, deadlines met, doctoral thesis submitted. But with my baby, time suddenly became something else, an element to be moved through, swum in like water, rather than a currency to be traded for the talisman of some accomplishment. The point wasn't getting anything done, it was simply moving through the hours, just to say we made it through the day. This was our only job, it was liberating. In the dead of winter, I put my baby in her puffy white snowsuit and carried her through humid greenhouses at the botanic gardens, past towering primeval ferns and rubber trees and dangling purple sweet sop like blackberries meant for a giant. It was like we were walking through the history of time itself. The smell of her shit would be sudden and overwhelming and holy. I couldn't get enough of it. At the museum a mile from our apartment, we nursed in front of the Egyptian mummies and Cecilia Vicuña's dangling kippas, massive vines of wool two stories tall, and our regular spot on the fifth floor, the huge landscape painting called A Storm in the Rocky Mountains, Mount Rosalie. It showed a big sky full of dark clouds swollen over rugged mountains and a glassy lake with piercing shafts of sunlight breaking through the storm to illuminate the texture of the craggy rocks and spindly pines. To me, it was about the way a moment could feel ruthless and beautiful at once. It told me weather systems weren't always sequential. Sometimes you were in the storm and the sunlight at once. Snow-capped Mount Rosalie loomed behind everything else, a mountain named for the painter's mistress, Rosalie, wife of his friend and fellow explorer, the woman who would eventually become his wife. He mapped his love onto a mountain before he could possess it fully, as if it could ever work that way, that love could ever be possessed. The painting had a bench right in front of it so that my baby could take what she needed from my body while I took what I needed from the canvas. When I held her like that, in the crook of my arm, latched on, it was as if she were a part of me again, as if we were one continuous being. And when I lost myself in that landscape, as I had lost myself in the imagined worlds of art for my whole life, it was both of us I was losing, our bodies connected by that continuous stream of milk.
From before she was born, one of the things I had wanted most for my daughter was for her to experience the world as infinite. Difficult, perhaps, and painful, but never closed, never static, always more of it, always another swath of sky behind the clouds, a sudden vista from the trail, the possibility of a love you couldn't see coming until it arrived. During the first year of my daughter's life, we nursed in front of 18th century portraits and 19th century nudes and a 21st century chair made of rubber breasts. We nursed in front of Diego Rivera's industry murals in Detroit, in front of the fetus he'd painted above all those assembly lines to honor Frida Kahlo's miscarriage that year, a private pain tucked into that deeply public vision. We nursed in front of Louise Bourgeoise's The Couple, overlooking a fjord in Oslo, a silver sculpture of two lovers entwined, their bodies like gleaming spires of soft-serve ice cream with arms and legs sticking out. They hung suspended in a grove of trees while we stood on the grass below, and my heart broke for my broken marriage and for my daughter born to that brokenness. All that wreckage lived alongside the beauty of those silver bodies joined in the trees. It did not diminish them. Grace has never lived in the unbroken parts of my life, but in the broken ones, the ones that still ached toward the possibility of beauty. Not possibility, actually, but rather acknowledgement. The awareness that beauty was already all around us. It never left. Writing about the ecstatic democratic attention of Walt Whitman's poetry, Lewis Hyde says, all things carry equivalent worth simply by virtue of their existence, be they presidents or beetles rolling balls of dung. The contending and reckoning under which most of us suffer most of the time, in which this thing or that thing is sufficient or insufficient, this lover, that lover, this wine, that movie, this pair of pants is laid aside. Whitman says it even more directly, the moth and the fish eggs are in their place. The bright suns I see and the dark suns I cannot see are in their place. Recently, a new friend told me about her gratitude practice, that she no longer articulates her gratitude as a series of abstractions, I'm grateful for my family, my baby, my job, etc., but rather tries to summon a series of recent visceral moments when she felt God close by. She lets her body drop back into the moments as a way of feeling grateful for them. Okay, I thought, that sounds right. Shifting from abstractions to visceral awareness sounded a lot like the advice I was always giving my graduate students about their writing. Get specific, get specific, get specific. I wanted them to get specific about their mothers and their breakups and the smell of their garbage. I once served my students a cake at the end of the semester, chocolate with icing piped in cursive script that formed those very words, get specific. 
When I started letting my body drop down into those moments of gratitude, I found so much waiting in my ordinary days. Nursing my baby when I had the hiccups, how she giggled each time my body shuddered, delighted, her body shaking with laughter, or my stepdaughter singing along to Lady Gaga on a Sunday morning, how the apartment smelled like maple syrup and chocolate chip pancakes, and her voice was quavering and gathering force, or meeting a student on a terrible rainy afternoon when my gut was knotted up with arguments I was having in my head, but I'd promised him we would meet for a walk, and how he brought me out of myself without even realizing what he was doing. All of it came to feel holy, my daughter's giggling body, milk spilling out of her mouth, the chill of that rainy afternoon and the drizzle on our bodies, my daughter tucked into her carrier against my chest, her hands in their tiny fleece-lined mittens. It was all so ordinary. It was all so unbearably beautiful. On a snowy day in early March, my mother and I went to the Hilma Off Klint exhibition at the Guggenheim uptown. It was one of my first Sunday afternoons without my daughter. Klint was a turn-of-the-century Swedish mystic painter, and her paintings are full of lush, gorgeous, searing colors in shapes that collide and intersect like cells under a microscope. Charred pumpkin, bright daffodil, twangy mints, rough seawater blue. For years, Offclint worked as a scientific illustrator, and the residue of that work remains in her canvases, an understanding that the spiritual realm is not some vast, abstract plane out there, but also lives in the inner reaches of our bodies, where cells are always being born and dying, where organs are always pulsing and remaking themselves, where outlandish processes are always afoot where our own innards remain simultaneously proximate and mysterious. If I've sometimes misunderstood spirituality as ascetic, the whittled purity of deprivation or renunciation, then her spirituality is the opposite. It's extravagantly colorful, almost cluttered, wildly alive, bursting at the seams with visual abundance, whiplash twists of sperm-like swirls, clustered jewels of saturated lavender and cheek blush pink. Her work aches with too muchness, just like the world we live in, just like sobriety itself. Her paintings don't ask us to find divinity in barrenness or lack. They say, here, look, let your breath be taken away by all this color and then restored to you a glow. Off Clint's major painting cycle, called Paintings for the Temple, consists of nearly 200 paintings meant for a temple she'd imagined vividly but never managed to get built. The temple she imagined, however, a conical tower with a long interior ramp, could have inspired a blueprint for the Guggenheim itself, years before the Guggenheim was built. It was as if the exhibition was fulfilling some kind of cosmic destiny. 
Before she'd started making these mystic paintings, Offklint had been a well-respected landscape and portrait artist on the Stockholm art scene. But after forming a spiritualist group with four other women, they called themselves the Five, she received instructions from a spirit named Amalil to begin what she called the Grand Commission to make these paintings for this unbuilt temple. One of her altarpieces shows a pyramid filled with a rainbow grid of hues, shaded salmon pink to wheat field ochre to dusky bruised purple, the pinnacle of the temple puncturing a radiant gold sun, almost like a fertilization, the thing man built reaching up to touch the holy, not as hubris but as yearning. We reach back for the thing that made us and it explodes with color. To see that beauty with my mother, without my daughter, was to be reminded that missing something did not mean I wasn't in the company of something else. Every part of me that knew how to be a mother had been a gift from mine. My mom had been on the other side of the phone every time. She cupped her hands to catch my blood when I cut my foot as a child. We watched the same mystery show on television every Sunday night for years with our twin bowls of ice cream. When one set of footprints disappeared, my mother carried me up the ramp of the Guggenheim and into those surging fields of color. My mother was the first one who told me it wasn't about finding God, but about realizing that God had been there all along in all those moments I hadn't seen him. Whenever I pictured the cartoon version of God, an old man with a white beard, I thought about the elderly male staff worker at Planned Parenthood who'd given me a little paper cup of orange juice after my abortion. He'd look just like that, like a little kid's drawing of God. Part of what it meant to find a higher power was to think, that's not God, that old man with the white beard, but of course he was God, handing me that paper cup of orange juice. He just wasn't all of God. That was part of what it meant to know that God had been there even when I wasn't looking for him. He'd been giving me that orange juice, waiting patiently as I got irritated with my mother for suggesting he was waiting there, standing with me in front of those paintings for the temple, with me as I pumped in my office the first time I went back to work when my daughter was nine months old. When I nursed, I felt for the first time in my blood and my bones and my breasts why it was meaningful to imagine Christ's body as nourishment, the communion wafer as holy love. Pumping was harder to understand as holy because it involved the absence of my daughter's body rather than her presence. It was all plastic tubes and screw tops bottles and flanges sticking out of holes in my milk-streaked, hands-free pumping bra. It was sharp, sudden pangs of, of pain and milk dribbled on the desk, but it was also a way of telling my body, do not forget her body, and a way of telling her body when she drank, do not forget that I have never forgotten your body, not even for a moment." In early sobriety, I grew obsessed with baths. 
It had something to do with the physical intensity of steaming water and with the sensation of immersing myself into something powerful and overwhelming, something that would take me out of my body by plunging me fully into it, or rather, not out of my body, but out of discomfort in my body. Submerging in the water, poised just at the brink of scalding, was a way to say, it's okay to just be. Epsom salts turned me into a noodle. The bag recommended using one cup, and that felt good. It made me feel loose and lush, like swaying underwater reeds, like reaching land spotted from a ship's prow. So the next time, I dumped in the entire bag. If something felt good, wouldn't more feel better? Communal baths were the best. If a small bath felt good, wouldn't more feel better? It was another way of getting close to strangers through a series of rituals. How many ways could I go to church without actually going to church? Confessing in basements, around folding chairs and coffee, or placing my naked body beside the naked bodies of strangers in a tiled tub of steaming water at the Korean place on Olympic Boulevard, or sweating together in a darkened room with baking walls of salt or jade or clay or sitting in a room with walls of ice like the inside of a freezer, all of us tucked like pints of ice cream and feeling our sweat lifted by its opposite. Nothing needed to be said in those rooms. Down the hallway, noodles were eaten and palms were kneading back muscles like bread dough and other bodies were sighing and leaking tears of ache and release and relief and we were part of something together, something big and silent and many-headed. It held us all. At the Russian banyas near Coney Island, I thought of how good it would feel to place yourself in a sweltering room in the middle of a Siberian winter, to wear a little woolen cap and remember there was something in the world that was not frozen. Sometimes on the afternoon each week that my daughter spent with her father, I took my body to the banya and sat in the frothy waters of the hot pool with tattooed guys from Brighton Beach, somehow vulnerable in their search for comfort which was not so unlike mine, and ate potato dumplings and borscht and sat in the eucalyptus steam with my friend Casey, who had nursed me through a breakup years ago with instant ramen and sci-fi movies based on Michael Crichton novels. Now she was nursing me through this impossible rupture with her belief that there was something waiting for me on the other side. She was willing to put her body beside my body in the space that made me believe maybe I could sweat myself away entirely and also reminded me that I couldn't, that my thighs were still sticking to the wooden bench and also assured me that it was okay that my body would always be there waiting. Somewhere along the line, Casey and I had started calling each other bank robber because I'd once told her that being friends with her made me feel like I could rob a bank, by which I meant not that she would drive the getaway car, but that knowing her made the world feel like it was fidgeting with promise. Anything was possible. Crazy things were possible. Have you ever had a friend like that? Maybe it's like that salt on a cut saying, open up. Let me tell you about one more night, this one at the Russian Baths on 10th Street, basement of a tenement since 1892, not so far from here.
My friend Anna had asked if we could stop for bone broth at the bone broth booth. So by the time we arrived, we were sloshing slightly, descending into a subterranean den of steam rooms and a cold plunge shadowed by clanking pipes. We were all set for rebirth. Our bellies were full of melted bones. We both had babies who were somewhere else. At every moment they were not drinking from us, our breasts were filling up for the next time they would. We sat in the room of radiant heat with a trough full of cold water and an impossibly skeletal old woman who looked like maybe she lived there. Maybe she'd once been a ballerina or a junkie or Persephone switched to a 12-month lease dumping buckets of ice water on her steaming skin. And in that room of radiant heat, my body was unbearably hot and my daughter's body was unbearably elsewhere. But Anna was beside me. And just a few days earlier, my friend Harriet had said this impossibly wise thing about how we were always trying to call experiences either bearable or unbearable, as if they had to be one or the other, when they were often both at once, or else shuttled back and forth between, which is one way to describe sitting in that radiant heat, standing to dump the cold water over my head, then letting myself get impossibly hot again, how good it felt to need something so badly, then reach for it, to do that over and over again. So that's why divinity lives in Banyas and in Harriet and in Anna and in Casey and also in that old woman who seemed to need that hot room like God needs a holy book to live in. And some kind of divinity also lives in my standing in front of you today confessing I don't know the first thing about that woman's life. Whatever I am calling God lives in that unknowing too. And in my not knowing exactly what I am referring to when I use that name to summon that sublime invisible presence which feels both necessary and impossible at once which is how I've always felt about God impossible to believe in him impossible to believe in his absence impossible and possible at once bearable and unbearable at once we go on living through this radiant heat stone cold sober and full of bones dipping our buckets in the frigid water because it is somehow once again enough Thanks.